Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We'll read verses 12 through 16, uh, but I'm going to be focusing on verse 14. Follow with me as I read chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now, if you notice at the beginning of this chapter, John begins with a very passionate warning. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. When he talks about spirits, he's not talking about ghosts or or some immaterial spirit. He's talking uh, about prophecy and, and prophets and so forth, as as we'll see. But he warns us not to be naive or to be gullible. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I'll not go any further than that other than the warning. He says there are false prophets. There are those who are speaking on behalf of God in the name of God, but they're false prophets. They weren't sent by God. They're not speaking God's word or his his revelation. They're giving their own. So it's a warning against being gullible, and and we need to be careful. Christians can often be gullible. But the sad fact is that we live in a fallen world that is full of lies. This really shouldn't surprise us, because the devil, who's called the prince of this world, is also called the father of lies. And mankind is said in the Bible to go astray as soon as they are born. Speaking lies. Sometimes you really don't know who you can trust, who you can believe. And I believe as the world is waxing worse and worse, it becomes even more difficult to know who you can believe. Uh, One of the possible side effects of teaching children in the belief of Santa Claus is the trauma it can sometimes cause in a child who sooner or later finds out the truth uh, when they find out they've been misled. What about the reindeer? No reindeer either? No. What about the North Pole? What about the elves? What about those cookies we set out? <laughs> who ate the cookies? Uh, what about the the old song, I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus? I, I remember 
hearing that the first time, a friend in grade school said, oh, there's this wonderful song, Mommy, I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. I had the same reaction that the writer goes on to say in the song, what would Daddy think? <laughs> well, that's what I thought. What in the world is going on here? Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Well, then you find out that it was just made up. It wasn't really true. Now, this is a relatively small matter, and we can laugh about it now, and and thankfully that uh, children grow out of it. They don't hold grudges when they find out their parents didn't tell them the truth about the whole matter. Well, we can get over things like that, but some relegate Christianity and the belief in God to the same status of a fairy tale or make-believe. Something you need to grow out of. Something we can and should shake off and discard as rubbish at best and harmful at worst. Well, John tells us not only that we shouldn't believe everything we hear, but as he goes on and does throughout his letter, that we should believe certain things that are indeed true. He gives us something here in this verse Verse 14, something we can and should believe and that we should hold fast to and that we shouldn't let go of this no matter what anyone else is saying. Something that has indeed been verified. It's not something they learned by hearsay. It's something which they had seen with their own eyes. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Uh, this is equivalent to the Apostle Paul's faithful sayings. First Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That means this is something that everybody should believe. Everyone should receive. Everyone should accept it. Why? Because it's true. And what is that? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Here's something you can trust. Here's something that you can depend on. Here's something that you can stake your salvation on. Stake the existence of your soul upon. If you're going to trust something to be true, you need to look at the source, don't you? Well, he says this. He says, we have seen and testify. Of whom was he speaking when he said we? We have seen and testified. Well, I believe that he could be speaking of many people who saw and were testifying that Jesus is the Christ. But I believe primarily he was speaking of himself as an apostle and his fellow apostles. They were called by the risen Lord to be his witnesses. We've been studying the book of Acts and we keep going back to chapter one to remind us what were the apostles doing well, they had been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to be His witnesses. You will be my witnesses. It was to them He had presented Himself alive after many what's called infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. They sat and listened to the Lord Jesus during His life, three years of His life, they saw His death, they saw His resurrection, and they received further teaching from the risen Lord. 
It was to them, he said, you will be my witnesses. And a witness, if it's to be a credible witness, must be an eyewitness. He must be able to testify what he has seen and what he has heard. In a court of law, if someone is brought who wasn't part of the whole transaction or whatever had happened, who not, didn't see anything, they write them off. You're not a credible witness. You weren't an eyewitness. But these men were. And you remember when the apostles determined to find someone to replace Judas, who had hanged himself, they understood that it could only be one who was uniquely qualified to be a witness. And so as they gathered together in the upper room, uh, they, they said, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John till the day he was taken up, the ascension, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so when John says, we have seen, he's speaking about himself and the apostles. We've actually seen this. If you just turn back to the uh, chapter one, you see uh, how he begins this letter. He begins it with that firsthand testimony. What was heard, seen and touched that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, he says which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And he just keeps going on saying the same thing, but emphasizing and underscoring and highlighting, we have seen this. This isn't something made up. Uh, this isn't a mother goose rhyme. This isn't something that, that you can dismiss. Here's credible witnesses. And not just one, but there were 12. And not just the 12. As you remember, the Apostle Paul was a witness too. He saw the risen Lord. And then you remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that there were more than 500 at one time saw him. They had seen. They were credible witnesses. And how important this is. A first-hand witness. Not someone who gets their information by hearsay. The disciples of Christ were to bear witness of what they heard and what they saw. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They saw it. They had come to know and they had come to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Remember when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? He's quizzing His disciples. Who do men say that I am? And they went through the list. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, said, We have come to know and believe that you are the Son of God. They believed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. How, how do you get to believe someone, a man who looks just like you, is the Son of God? 
Well, they saw a lot of things. They heard a lot of things. They, they heard him speak and teach as never a man spoke. They heard him speak with such wisdom, such authority. They saw him just take their, their religious leaders and what we'd say have them for lunch and showing they could come to him trying to trick him and they usually leave with their tails between their legs. Because he spoke as never a man spoke. But more importantly, they saw him do things that no man had ever done. When asked by John's disciples, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That'll settle it. And so he does. These disciples, from the very beginning of his ministry, they saw him change the water into wine. They saw the winds and the waves obey his voice. If someone goes out on a stormy sea and speaks to the wind and to the waves and says, Hush, be still. And it stops. Well, you know you're dealing with somebody that's quite important here. <laughs> well, they, uh, the miracles, they, they saw it with their own eyes. They, they watched the man with a shriveled arm reach it forth, and it was like the other. They saw these miracles, and these miracles weren't meant to dazzle or, or to impress, but to convince. To convince them that he was who he said he was the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so these disciples, they, they concluded not only that no one could do the things He did unless God was with Him, but that He was indeed the very Son of God. And the point is that they, the apostles of Jesus Christ, were credible witnesses, and they could and they can be trusted. Well, of what were they witnesses? What did they see and what did they testify? Well, they saw a lot of things, but the conclusion of the matter is this, that the Father had sent the Son as Savior of the world. That's what they saw. That's what they were testifying about. That's what they were doing as a church and as apostles of Christ, as preachers. They were preaching the Gospel. This is speaking of God the Father sending God the Son into the world. The last week we looked at John chapter 1, verse 14, where John tells us that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is a staggering claim that this man whom they came to know over the course of three years was actually God in the flesh. Now in this verse... He tells us that it was God the Father who sent Him, the Son, into the world and why He sent Him into the world. It's a very simple, straightforward statement, isn't it? And yet it has some very powerful and tremendously important implications. A 19th century preacher, William Jay, gives several uh, implications, which I borrowed some and, and added others. But the first implication is this, that if God the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, then the world needed to be saved. 
Now, that seems so obvious, and that's what I love about reading things like this. I go, that's so obvious. Why didn't I see it? It's right there. It's clear. If he sent his son to the world to be Savior, then the world needed to be saved. A Savior is that. He's someone who saves or someone who rescues. My son is a firefighter now, and, and firefighters, that's what they do. They're, they're, they're going to save someone, to rescue someone. When you, when you hear the fire truck going down the street and an ambulance following, you know, they, oh, they're just going to get some lunch. Oh, they're going to help someone. They need something. And sometimes they show up and, you know, they didn't need to be called, but they were called anyway. But he came because there was a real problem. Man needed to be saved. When the angels announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds, they said, Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Whatever you think about Jesus in the manger, you need to understand that that's a Savior. Someone who came to rescue. We just read in Matthew one twenty one, where the angels said to Joseph, He will save His people from their sins. Because the world needs a Savior. This world into which He was sent and into which He came was a sinful world. In the beginning, when God created the world, it was good, He said. It was good, but it wasn't long before sin entered the world. It entered the world through the temptation of Satan to our first parents when that serpent came and and tempted Eve, and then Eve gave it to Adam, and he sinned as well. He tempted them to disobey the clear command of God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what sin is. It's when you disobey what God says. Either you don't do what He says to do, or you do what He says don't do. But that's what sin is. And you say, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a sinner, maybe I'm not. If you don't know, that's because you don't know what God said. And ignorance is no excuse. But you just go right down through the Ten Commandments. And you start looking at each one of them. And you say, this is what God said. Have I broken that commandment or not? Some some people think they haven't broken them at all, but they don't understand the, the, the depth of those commandments. Murdering someone isn't just when you take an object and and plunge it into them or shoot them and kill them. Murdering is when you hate someone in your heart, Jesus says. Adultery is when you just commit the actual act. But Jesus said if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he's already committed adultery. Then there's the whole sin of covetousness. Wanting what others have. Of lying. Of stealing. Of disobeying parents. And we start to realize, no, why have sinned? That's what a sinner is. And it was into this world of sin that God sent His Son. Through one man, Adam sinned and sin entered the world. Paradise was lost. Mankind was lost. Lost in the, in the greatest sense of the term. You see, sin separates us from God. We don't think much of sin often. We, we think, oh, it's just a little thing. Oh, everybody else does it, so it can't be all that bad. Don't ever think just because everyone else does it, it isn't bad or not that bad. That's the problem. Everybody is doing it. They are sinning. They're turning away from God. 
All we like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And most people think, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm going my own way. I'm going to determine what I want to do. God is the one who made us. God is our creator. He has the right over us. You don't have the right over yourselves. That's what the atheist says. There is no God. I don't want God. I don't need God. I'll not listen to God. But you see, sin separates us from God. Just as in the garden where there was once fellowship and once love and, and, and joy between God and His creatures. Now there's alienation. Adam's hiding from God. There's enmity between the creature and God. The God who made us to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Now there's alienation. Think of the world into which the Lord Jesus Christ was born. It was a sinful world. It was a sinful world. Listen to what uh, Dr. J.I. Packer uh, says. He speaks of uh, the, uh, the incarnation and, and the, the world into which Jesus came. He came into this world, but it was a really a sinful world. He says the story usually uh, it gets all prettied up when they tell us, the Christ, tell us the story Christmas by Christmas, he says. But it's really rather a, a ghastly and cruel world. The reason why Jesus was born outside the hotel is that it was full and nobody would offer a bed to a woman in labor. Stop and think of that. A woman in labor? Nope. No room. No room. Nobody would give up the room. Nobody do. Why? Because of the callousness of their heart. Stories told dispassionately often without comment, he says, but no thoughtful reader can help shuddering at the picture of callousness and degradation. degradation. How sinful men are. And then we looked last Sunday night about the whole matter of Herod the Great, when he heard from the wise men that the king was born. And he deceived and tried to get them to come back and tell him where he is so he could, quote, worship him. He was lying through his teeth. But then when he found out they tricked him, which they didn't, it appears, but that's how he took it, he orders the massacre of every child two years and under in Bethlehem and all of its districts. What a wicked man. But that was this kind of world in which Christ was born. A sinful world. But it says that He, the Father, sent the Son to be Savior of the world. He comes to save and to rescue. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. To save the world. Everything he did showed that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus said the thief doesn't come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's why Christ came into the world. So that you and I might experience the life of God. To know God, the true and the living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Even His miraculous signs were reflective of His coming as a Savior. 
He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. The lepers were cleansed. The lame walked. The deaf could hear. He offered the weary and the heavy laden rest. The thirsty, He offered living water. In every way, He came to seek and to save that which is lost. But the second implication is that the salvation of man was God's initiative. In particular, it was the initiative of God the Father. You see, mankind didn't request it. Mankind didn't petition heaven to please send us a Savior. In fact, it didn't even want a Savior. It it didn't even want Him when He came. He came into His own, John writes, but His own did not receive Him. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, quoting the Old Testament Scripture, says, There is none righteous, no, not one, none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They become unprofitable. There is none who does good, not even one. In the work of redemption, it was the Father who sent the Son. Some have the idea that it was all the Son's doing an initiative. And sometimes people have a misunderstanding about God and the Trinity. They think of God the Father being the God of the Old Testament. That He's all wrath and, and, and foreboding. But God the Son is loving. And God the Son is the one who comes and pacifies the Father's wrath and, and so forth. But the Bible says that it was God the Father who sent the Son. The Father sent His only begotten Son. He sacrificed the most to send His Son into the world as a Savior. Jesus, when He speaks of the the work that the Father had given Him to do, He says in John 17, I have finished the work which You have given Me to do. The Father says, do this and do that. And what motivated Him to do this? Well, John tells us in chapter 4, verse 9, and this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that He has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is the manifestation of God's love. You want to know whether God's a God of love or not? Look at the cross. Look what God did. He sent His Son into this world, this wicked world who would treat Him such. In such a way, he would treat him that, that it's, it's more than embarrassing. It's horrible. In this is love, in verse 10, he says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's God's initiative. The third implication, that if the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, then their salvation is a matter of great importance. I would say the greatest importance. God doesn't trifle. God doesn't just do something to see how it's going to turn out. He sent His Son into the world. It must be important. And it should be the most important thing in the world to us. And yet, that's not really what we see when we look around. Now, I know during the Christmas time and people are always saying Merry Christmas and put Christ back in Christmas and uh, all, all of the things that they say. But then comes Monday, or comes Tuesday and things start getting back to normal and people stop talking about it. They quit singing the hymns and they, they go back to their way of life. 
and it's all gone. It should be the most important thing to us, and yet that's not really what we see when we look around. Men will spend a great deal of time, a great deal of money, a great deal of energy, and sacrifice a great deal for all kinds of temporal matters. We all do. Whether it has to do with physical health or prosperity or their pastimes and hobbies or seeking after the pleasures of this world, they'll spend all kinds of time and money and energy. Yet when it comes to their souls and their spiritual prosperity, they're not willing to lift a finger. It's not very important. It doesn't look like it. Yet there's a day coming when all of us, you and I, will care very little about the things of this earth. Like the rich fool Jesus spoke of who had these bumper crops and said, I'll build bigger barns so I can store my crops. He was concerned only about enjoying his prosperity, about eating and drinking. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's all he was concerned about. And yet Jesus said, tonight your soul will be required of you. And those things stored up for you, what will become of those? He thought he had many things stored up for many years. But this night, your soul will be required of you. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day may bring forth. And people are living like they're going to keep on living and never die. They think of their retirement and their plans for retirement. And look how many people after they retire, they die soon after. I don't know if that's God mocking them or what, but it's a sad fact. They spend all their time looking forward to that day, and when that day comes, maybe they're too infirm to enjoy their riches or they're no longer here. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Why? You know, these things aren't lasting. Paul even tells Timothy, instruct those who are rich in the world not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. It's uncertain. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Yet men are busy with the things of this earth. We're all busy with those things, caring more about them than we do our souls or about the worship of God. You see, we all have souls that can never die. And we will all spend eternity either in heaven enjoying the presence of God and the blessing of God or we'll be in hell enduring His wrath. For the Bible says is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this was important to God to send His Son to be Savior of the world. It's important. That's why He sent Him. When God sends his, when God sends His angels to do something, it's important. If you get a visit from an angel like Joseph did, or, or Mary did, or, or Zacharias did, or Simeon was told that he would uh, see the Lord's Christ before he died, and you get an, a visit from an angel, that's important. You better sit up and listen. But did you know this? That's nothing in comparison to Him sending His Son. And that's what the writer to Hebrews tells us. 
says, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which he says was first spoken by the Lord and then confirmed by those who heard him, the apostles. I wonder if Christians who have died and gone to to be with the Lord think it was important. No, we don't have to guess. Revelation 1 tells us what they're doing in heaven. They're singing in heaven to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood and has made us kings and priests of his, to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. They're rejoicing in their salvation. That's their hymn of praise. He sent His Son to be Savior of the world. And now they are safe and secure in the arms of God. What about those who've died and gone to hell? I wonder if they think it was important or not. Well, we don't have to guess again. Jesus told us that story about Lazarus and the rich man. They both died. Lazarus went to be in heaven with Abraham in the bosom of Abraham. But the rich man, he went to Hades. Went to hell. But what does he say? Send Lazarus back from the dead. Send him back from the dead so he can warn my own family. My own family who doesn't know what I'm experiencing right now. So that they can avoid this place. He thought it was important. But it was too late. Every one of us is going to think it's important one day or another. But then the fourth implication. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Then this salvation is no easy achievement. (laughs) This was the only way to save man, you see. The Father had to make the greatest sacrifice. And the Son emptied Himself and became a man. Because there's no other way of salvation The scheme of salvation avoids such difficulties that only God could remove by sending His Son into the world. You see, God can't be merciful at the expense of His justice. Do you you understand what that means? God cannot be merciful at the expense of His justice. In other words, God must be just. And holy, just as a judge is supposed to be righteous and to judge righteously. But if God just said, oh, you did this and that, and that's okay, go ahead, it's canceled. What would you think of a God like that? We hear of things going on in our own country of of murderers being let go and and, and, uh, they're, they're pardoned. I heard a certain governor pardon like 30 or 40 uh Murderers. Now, maybe some of it was right, but others maybe not. And you think, what kind of judge is that? Well, God cannot just cancel out His justice. He told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Did He mean it? When God says, the soul that sinneth it shall surely die. Shall not the judge of the earth do right and judge men? But when He sent His Son, that was the only way 
to take care of both his justice and to express his love and mercy. To express his love and mercy, he had to deal with their sin. And their sin could only be dealt with and paid for by the eternal Son of God who came to this world. And the Bible says that God the Father laid upon Him, that is God the Son, the iniquity of us all. That He took our sins and He wore them as it were a coat and He put it on He wore it as if it were His own. And He suffered the justice of God. That's what was happening at the cross. God sent Him to Bethlehem, but He was intending to send Him finally to the cross. And it was there on the cross that God poured out His wrath upon His own Son. Many hands were raised to wound Him, the hymn writer says. None would interpose to save. You remember Jesus said, I could call down from my Father right now and He would send twelve legions of angels to rescue me. But He said, no. No one to rescue Him. God poured out His wrath upon His own Son. Many hands were raised to wound Him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced Him was the stroke that justice gave. That is the justice of God pouring out His wrath, giving His own Son the wages of our sin. Nobody else could do that. The best person on earth couldn't do it for you because the best person on earth Guess what? He has his own sins to be paid for. The angels couldn't pay for them. It had to be the Son. And the Son who became a man and identified with us. And it was the Son of God who took the wrath of God that we might be made righteous before God. The just for the unjust, the Bible says, that He might bring us to God. And so here we have a firm foundation. This is our salvation. It's in the Son. He alone could deal with the difficulties. Salvation is no easy achievement. Jesus paid for it with His own life and blood. Fifthly, if the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, then, the, then there is full encouragement for every desponding sinner. He didn't send His Son to be the Savior of the Israel or the Jews. He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. It's here. Anyone can come to Him. We all have warrant to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is the Savior of the world. He didn't come to save just the Jews. He came to save Jews and Gentiles. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His, the name of which we boast. And so anyone here wondering, can I come to Christ? Can I be saved? Oh, yes. He sent His Son into the world to be Savior of the world. You can believe and you can trust 
And because God sent His Son, something so important to Him that only He could deal with. And He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Singing a few Christmas hymns won't save you. (laughs) Putting up a nativity scene in your front yard won't save you. You can give all kinds of uh, homage and tip your hat to Jesus on, on Christmas and Easter. No, you must come to Him. Believe on Him. Trust in Him. Call upon Him to save you. You become a follower of Him. Just like the disciples were followers of Him. God is in you and you are in Him. And then finally, if the Father sent His Son to the world to be Savior of the world, what would you think of those who won't come to Him to have life? You're doing just what the writer to Hebrews was warning against. That is neglecting so great a salvation. Neglecting a salvation that God sent His Son into the world to be Savior? And you're going to say, no thanks. That's a great sin. Especially when you think of their their hopelessness and their helplessness. Because there's no other way. There is absolutely no other way to be saved but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. No other way. (laughs) And you're going to say, nope, not interested. Men are helpless. There's salvation in no other, the disciples said, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But then also, you look at the greatness of their guilt. That's got to be the most atrocious sin. A.W. Tozer called this the, the sin of a profane society. Saying no to the Lord Jesus Christ. The saddest words in the Bible, I believe, are those found in 1 John when it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. What about you? Are you one of those who won't receive Him? No, it's not worth it. Not worth your time. Not worth your sacrifice. Oh, but I'll have to give up. So, give up. (laughs) He only tells you to give up what's bad for you. Only what will hurt you. What's hurting your life already. Some say, well, I, I, I would come to Him, but I don't know He can save me. Then you're saying, no, he, he can't save you. He can't rescue you. God the Father sent His own Son to the, the world to be Savior, and He can't save you? What an affront to God. <laughs> the Bible tells us that He is able That He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him. All who come to Him. So you come to Him now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what Christmas should be all about. It's coming back to the Savior. Believing in Him. Trusting in Him. Following Him. Tipping your hat won't do anything but increase your condemnation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to this earth to bring us salvation. didn't come to bring us what we deserve. If He did that, He would send Him to condemn the world. The Bible says this also. It says that He came the first time 
to offer salvation, not condemnation. He came the first time as a Savior. He's coming again the second time as a judge. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. Meek and mild. That He's coming to judge the world with His holy angels. And only those who put their faith and their trust and their confidence in Him as Savior will be able to stand on that day. Bold shall I stand on Thy great day. How can we as sinners be bold? Because we have such a Savior who's washed away our sins, who's given us His own righteousness. Bold shall I stand in Thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and guilt and fear and shame. He's delivered us. Has He delivered you? Has He delivered you? I hope He has. If He hasn't, He said, what do I do? Tell me what to say. I don't need to tell you what to say. All you've got to do is call upon Him. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you as a sinner. To save you from your sins. And He will rescue. None who call upon Him have ever been disappointed. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You. Thank You for sending Your Son into the world as Savior of the world. Thank You that that includes us, includes anyone, regardless of their, their race or their riches or their whatever they might have. You came to save sinners. And that that's a faithful saying that we can believe and we can count on. And we can have assurance. Lord, thank You for sending Jesus Christ into this wicked world to save us. Oh, Lord, may each one here turn to Him today and turn now. Now is the day of salvation. Help them to turn now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.